Well, some years ago, an author by the name of Phyllis McGinley wrote these words. She said, I have read that during the process of canonization, which is to declare and officially recognize a person as a saint, the Catholic Church demands proof of joy in the candidate. And although I have not been able to track down chapter and verse, I like the suggestion that dourness, sternness, gloominess, harshness, obstinance is not a sacred attribute, unquote. Now come clean. All of us know people, all of us know Christians who have a hard time smiling, right? Smile. <laughs> Or exhibiting any kind of fun-loving joyousness. I mean, you know people like that, right? I've heard Christians described as a bunch of stiff, sourpussed killjoys who wouldn't know the concept of fun if it was staring them right in the face. Now, obviously, this stereotype is tremendously and a tremendously exaggerated lie. Am I right? The fact is that anyone who truly knows the wonderful grace of life in Christ has discovered that there is no greater enjoyment, there is no greater cause for joyful laughter, no greater impetus for singing an exuberant celebration than the deep, settled conviction that God has delivered us from spiritual captivity and we are on the road home. Amen? Joy ought to be the characteristic of the Christian pilgrimage. It ought to be one of the chief characteristics of the of the Christian pilgrimage. It's only second to love in Paul's list of spiritual fruit in Galatians 5, right? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. But where does that leave the many who experience the crushing blows of pain and depression and sadness where the warm sun sunlight of gladness seems to be permanently eclipsed by the shadows of loneliness and hurt. Have you ridden that train before? I have. Most of us have at some point or another. Maybe you might be there right now. It's in those times that a very dangerous thing can happen. We can begin to look at our lack of joy and conclude something like this. Well, I must be a miserable failure as a disciple of Christ. Uh, maybe I'm not even a Christian at all. Christians are supposed to have full joy, and I don't. Therefore, the logic goes, maybe I'm not a Christ follower at all. Bad logic. And it's even worse theology. Fact is, as one man has said... Joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It is a consequence. Let me say that again. Joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It is a consequence of it. It is not what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. It is what comes to us when we are walking in the way of faith and obedience to Christ. Is that right? That's a... Eugene Peterson that wrote that in his commentary on the Psalms, a long obedience in the same direction. We cannot make ourselves joyful, not for very long at least. 
True joy is not self-motivated. It's not personally manufactured. It's not financially purchased, and it's not politically arranged. It comes only as the result of hearing God's voice in the midst of our pain and deciding to live in obedience to him. Only he can restore our joy and renew our strength. And rest assured, no matter how dark your cave, he will find you there. No matter how deep your abyss, he will descend. No matter how cold and lonely your prison, he can release you from it. He is a relentless pursuer of his people. Is that right? Many years ago, I had the opportunity to hear a moving account of how completely God can and will restore joy to a hurting heart. The speaker told how his personal friend, an Episcopal priest, walked into his office at the church on Monday morning, and he wrote a hasty letter of resignation to the vestry, and then he went back to his house, and he sat down at the kitchen table, and he wrote a letter to his wife and his three children, all under the age of 10, that he was abandoning them. He fled to a logging camp here in New England, and he took a job in Vermont as a logger, and one Saturday afternoon in January, it was about 10 degrees below zero, heavy snow, and the priest was sitting in a portable aluminum trailer that he'd rented, and the only source of heat that he had was one tiny little space heater. And the heater suddenly quit, and it died, and within minutes, the temperature inside that trailer was down to zero degrees. Shivering, and in a fit of rage, the priest picked up that, that portable heater and flung it through the window, broke the window, and he shouted at Jesus, I hate you. Get out of my life. I'm finished with this Christian junk. It's all over. He sank to his knees, defeated and weeping. And then in the bright darkness of faith, he says, he heard a voice from within say, it's okay, Kevin. I understand. I'm with you, and I am for you. And then he said that he sensed Jesus weeping inside within him, and he knew that Christ felt what he was feeling. It was an overwhelming experience of intimacy with God. And that same afternoon, Kevin Martin packed his bags, returned to Columbus to be reconciled with his family and his church, and he went on to pastor one of the most dynamic and alive and spirit-filled Episcopal churches in America, St. Luke's in Seattle, Washington. My friends, your joy can be restored. Our strength can be renewed. Joy comes to us, says author Eugene Peterson again, because God knows how to wipe away tears and in his resurrection work, create the smile of new life. Joy is what God gives, not what you and I work up. But we can do something. 
We can act on the principle that restored joy will come when we decide to live in a, the abundance of God's grace and trust him to renew our strength even when the feelings aren't there anymore. Now, we don't have to go through what Kevin Martin went through to experience restored joy. Most of us will not likely be pulled to such an extreme. Yet, whether we find ourselves in the depths of a traumatic experience, the dark night of the soul, or we are touched by the arid winds of a spiritual dry spell, we can experience restored joy in the Lord. How, you might ask? Psalm 126 seems to give us a pattern. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 126 this morning. And we're going to unpack this psalm. It takes us through the inner struggle of a godly people searching for renewed strength and restored joy. Let me read it to you. I'm going to read it out of the ESV. Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the, in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, for those of you that might not know, Psalm 126 is part of a group of psalms known as the Pilgrim Psalms, or the Songs of Ascents. That's Psalm 120 to 134. That grouping is known as the Psalm of Ascent, Songs of Ascents. Might say it in your Bibles. These psalms, according to scholars, were likely sung by the Hebrews as they made their way up to Jerusalem for the great worship festivals during the course of a year. The journey to Jerusalem for a Jew, by the way, was always upward. You probably already know that. Geographically, it was the highest city in Palestine. And they made this journey at least three times every year. And we know from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus made these journeys as well. And I think, just as a side note, that it's a comforting thought to realize that the very words of this psalm were likely sung by our Savior himself. Knowing that he himself was going to be the ultimate fulfillment of these words. Spiritually contained in these psalms are some of the most important words of counsel, encouragement, and admonition, and identification with the Christian pilgrimage of faith and discipleship available to us as believers. Our journey is, in a way, always an upward call to a heavenly Jerusalem, isn't it? Our spiritual walk, our spiritual pilgrimage is, is an ascent. Sometimes it's a struggle, often exhausting and many times discouraging. But along the way, we have these ancient songs to help us remember three vitally important things. Who God is, who we are, and where we're going. This psalm gives us the all-important reminder that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Say that with me. The joy of the Lord is our strength. 
If we learn to sing it well, we will discover the power for renewed joy, a prayer for restored joy, and God's promise of reestablished joy. Now, now let me be clear about this so you don't get the wrong impression. This psalm is not a formula. People like formulas, right? We do it all the time. This psalm is not a formula for reclaiming joy, but for simple steps toward a renewed faith, which will bring us joy. When the joy in your faith seemingly goes away, and it's seemingly gone, it helps to follow the pattern that we find here in Psalm 126. And here's the first thing that I think the psalmist really kind of points out to us in this psalm. Remember the power of joy in your past. Remember the power of joy in your past. Look at verses 1 and 2, Psalm 126 again. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, nothing strengthens faith more effectually than the memory of a previous experience. Now think about that. So what I'm saying here, I think the psalmist is getting at or, or showing us here is that to refresh our memory of what God has done. Refresh your memory with what God has previously done in your life. Because joy has a history. Joy has a history. And sometimes you and I need to go back and review it. We need to fill our minds with those stories and accounts of God's acts. Not just in human history on the whole. But in our own personal history as well. For example... I can look back over the past 34 years of my time as a pastor at Fayette Baptist Church, and I can vividly recall there were certain services which were filled with incredible spirit of, uh, an incredible spirit of joy. Times when God moved with power. Lives were changed. People were reconciled. Souls were saved. We saw them. We felt them. We touched them. They're what people often refer to as the warm fuzzies, right? You have those here in this church. I'm sure you've had them. But they don't happen every Sunday, do they? Sometimes they don't happen for long stretches of time. And we find off and on that the warm fuzzies are often replaced by the cold pricklies, right? And when that happens, we can get seriously discouraged that was especially true during the years of COVID, wasn't it? But we can always look back at those defining moments when God moved and we can remember. Every Christian has experiences that they can point to in the past when they have been ambushed by the overwhelming and overpowering joy of what God has done in their life. Am I right? The time when God had miraculously provided just what you needed, just when you needed it. The day of your salvation. Times when a friend said just the right word or gave just the right touch. When God answered the prayer that you never dreamed that he would answer and he answered it. Just as Israel 
as they sung this psalm, recalled the time when God released people who were in exile, when God restored the fortunes of those who were stripped of every ounce of happiness that they had, we can remember what, that the, when the Lord brought us back from what seemed like an absolute hopeless captivity. What an looking that is that God has given us a memory to go back and look at those times of joy. So profound was the experience to these Israelites that it seemed unreal to them, like a dream. That's what it says here in verse 1. God's deliverance for Israel was a vivid national memory. It was a miraculous thing. It was such an overwhelming work, mighty work of God, that the psalmist writes, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. And that Hebrew term, joyful shouting, literally means creaking or shrieking. and represents this very shrill sound, the sound of a loud, ringing, triumphant cry. Just imagine it now. Picture the high-pitched screams of a stadium filled with people when their favorite team is winning. You know what that sounds like, right? You've probably been part of that. That's kind of the idea. Actually, I have a better idea that I can give you a picture of. You can all relate to this, I'm sure. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I had our 13-year-old granddaughter over to our home with two of her teenage friends. And it was one of those like 90 degree days and we went down to the pond, which is on our property, and they got on the paddle board and the paddle boat and they were out on that pond while my wife and I sat on the beach the whole afternoon. And all we heard was three teenage girls shrieking and screaming and laughing and playing nonstop for like three hours. That gives you a picture of what this word in the Hebrew means. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting like three 13-year-old girls. That sound of a loud, ringing, triumphant, joyful cry. Picture all of that. That's the memory for these Israelites. They were so full of joy because of God's deliverance that they couldn't contain themselves it was just the opposite, mind you now, of the reaction described in Psalm 137. Psalm 137, if you put it side by side with Psalm 126, you're going to see a little bit of a different picture. Psalm 137 verses 1 to 4 says this. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung up our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing, sing us one of those songs of Zion. But how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Sounds pretty dark and depressing, doesn't it? But now juxtapose Psalm 126 right next to that. It'll be on the screen for you in verses 1 and 2. When the Lord brought us back, the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. 
When our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting, and they said among the nations, joy, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. What a contrast. Have there been times like that in your Christian life? Write them down. Write them down. Review them. Keep a journal. Read it. Reread it often. Map out on paper the key events of your life, complete with twists and turns and, and, and all those where God tangibly remind, worked in your life and reminding yourself of how God has worked in your life. That's what the Bible was for Israel, by the way. It was a journal, a life map, recorded reminders of who they were and who they became with the Lord's guidance. The pages of the Old Testament are splashed with the ink of memorial markers identifying not only the pitfalls of Israel history, but also the joy of God's acts of deliverance when they were in captivity. So profound are God's defining moments like that in the lives of people that even those on the outside looking in, watching you, can see the reason for your joy. So not only should we refresh our memory of what God has done, but it helps to remind ourselves about what others have said. Look at verse 2 again, the second part of the verse. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. What things? Well, again, you can find them on practically every page of the Old Testament. Moses writes of the exodus from slavery in Egypt, right? In one breath, they were crying out to the, Lord's for de the Lord for deliverance. And a few chapters later, they're on the other side of the Red Sea, singing at the top of their lungs. Exodus chapter 15, the first two verses. Moses' song of deliverance. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Then a few books later, we meet David. David, who is running for his life from Saul. And before you know it, David's king. And the Psalms are a collection of his songs documenting the great things that God had done for David, complete with all the tragedies and the triumphs. And throughout the prophets, as you keep going, you read of God's promised deliverance and a coming redeemer who will once and for all liberate his people from not only physical, but also spiritual bondage. And the pages of the New Testament identify all those great things that God has done through Jesus Christ for all who place their faith and trust in him. Colossians chapter 1, for example, verse 12. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance with patience and with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
Because he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's reason for joyful shouting, isn't it? If your joy is gone, my friends, take a moment to look back. What great things has the Lord done for you? On every page of the Old Testament, we find out what God had done for Israel. On almost every page of the New Testament, we find what God has done for all of us who have come into the faith of Christ. An old saint once said these words. He wrote, when I grow weary of well-doing and when my faith sags and my spiritual heart faints, I remember I go back to my former life before I became captive to God and I take a long walk up and down the street of my sinfulness. And when I return, I am so full of thanksgiving to the God who saved me, so full of the mercy and the grace of God that my heart is once again singing and my feet are dancing with joy. Good sentiment. And he's right. This just happened to me a few weeks ago. I was speaking at a conference for the Refidim Project up in Bangor. I had a few hours to kill. So I got in my car and I drove over to the campus of U, U Maine in Orono, where I went for one year of my life straight out of house, high school, and it was one of the worst years of my entire life. So entrenched in the world, not knowing Christ, I drove past the old dormitory that I used to live in, and I could not believe the emotion that was welling up inside of me. And I just realized and began to praise God all alone, sitting there in my car, about how he delivered me from a life that, a trajectory that could have been absolutely disastrous. And how that grace had come over me and led me to Jesus, and what joy filled my soul just remembering that. You see, if your joy is gone, take a moment to look back. What great things has God done for you? On every page, we see it in the scripture. When we remember that the Lord has done great things for us, then we put ourselves in another position. We put ourselves in the position to reaffirm the preciousness of joy in the present. Look at verses 3 and 4. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. That's present tense. We are glad. Please circle and adopt those three words in the Bible because you know what? They are the hinge of this psalm. They are the, in the exact middle of this psalm. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you can remember really saying those words? We are glad. When's the last time? Because joy not only builds on the past, but it borrows from the future and it practices the promises of Scripture in the present. 
people who experience the joy of the Lord now, people who can say we are glad, bear fruit for God now. They're not waiting around, for thing, waiting around for things to get better in their life before they will serve God. Friends, there is this deep and inextricable connection in Jesus' words in John chapter 15 between having full joy and bearing much fruit. Isn't there? The world, my friends, the world needs a joyful witness-bearing church, doesn't it? Because there's not much joy out there. A glad church is a church that will transform society. If you don't believe that, just read Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and you'll find out that what were they doing there in that text? They were doing all these things because of their newfound faith, and it says that they were, they, they were taking their meals together and enjoying the Lord with gladness. With gladness. If we're going to experience the joy of the Lord here and now, it will be because we are confident that God doesn't change his dealings with us. He has a pattern of producing joy in the past. He has promised to bring joy in our future, and therefore we can expect him to restore our joy in the present when we are active in his purposes. And that truth is reinforced in two ways. First of all, we need to rehearse the proof of God's faithfulness in the past. Verse 3 says, the Lord has done great things for us. Now, we've talked about the past already, so we don't have to go back there again. But the fact is, I need to remind us of this, is that we cannot live in the past continually. You need to remember your past, but you can't camp out there. God never meant us to. Yes, we could say with the psalmist that the Lord has done great things for us, but we must be careful not to make those memories of the past merely monuments because they're not monuments, they are trail markers. There's a difference. Monuments are erected to attract tourists, stirring nostalgic, warm feelings. But trail markers are footprints leading us forward in our pilgrimage. Amen? We are not tourists, are we? We're pilgrims. As William Faulkner aptly points out, a monument only says, at least I got this far, while a footprint says, this is where I was when I moved forward again. Joy in the present doesn't come merely from rehearsing the proof of God's past faithfulness, but it is the result of focusing on God's present activities while we move forward toward his future promises. And that focus is clarified through genuine prayer for revival and for restoration. And that's what verse 4 hints at. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the desert. We must resort to prayer for God's finishing touch on the future. Restore our captivity. The psalmist's prayer was that God would finish the restoration completely. In other words, the psalmist cries, the work's not done, Lord. Bring back all the captives. We who occupy the land now are just but a small remnant. And you know what? For Israel, that cry is still being heard. That cry is still heard. 
Restore us, Lord. Bring us back. And you know what? For the church, that cry is equally fervent. You know what we should be really crying out? Fill the kingdom, Lord. Fill the kingdom. Bring all those who are held in the captivity of the evil one out in the world into the joy of salvation. Let them return in overflowing numbers like the streams in the south. The ESV translates this. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev is a desert south of Judah. The streams are nothing but hard, dry, parched riverbeds carved through the desert, but they are transformed in a matter of hours during the downpours in the rainy seasons into torrents of water overflowing their banks. By the way, have you seen the videos of New York City in the last couple of days? If you haven't, you need to go online and look at those. It's apocalyptic. It's absolutely unbelievable. Seven inches of rain, four inches per hour. I mean, New York City looks like a flood zone. Cars floating down the streets. Waterfalls going down the steps of subway terminals. Unbelievable. That's the picture of what's going on here when he says, only on a positive note, the psalmist says, restore the kingdom, Lord, restore our captivity as the streams in the south. And the transformation in the Negev during the rainy season is absolutely dramatic. Overnight, the surrounding desert can be turned into a flourishing place of grass and flowers with the rains. That kindness of the death of the psalmist's prayer here. He knows that if God can physically transform the dryness of the desert ditches into overflowing streams of life and beauty, that he can do the same thing for our souls spiritually. Amen? Overnight, joy can be restored that dramatically. He knows that we, as well as multitudes of others, can be delivered from captivity. His desire is for the exiles to come home in abundance. Let me ask you, is that your desire? Is that your prayer? Is it mine? Are you satisfied with the size of your Christian community? Shouldn't we long for the empty seats to be filled to overflowing? Not for the sake of numbers, mind you, but for the sake of Christ's kingdom. Amen? Is your joy in the Lord waning? Well, maybe it's because your involvement in the Great Commission is not where it should be. I have to ask myself that same question. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I don't go through the dry spells like you do. Let me ask you this. Who are you praying for right now to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you write down a name? When was the last time you shared your faith with someone? When was the last time you felt that excitement and that joy of introducing someone to Jesus and inviting them to become his committed follower? When did you feel the joy of investing yourself and your resources for the service and glory of God? 
You know, Jesus said in Luke 15, 10, that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That joy, my friends, can be our joy, Jesus said. Full joy. However, in the process of all that, we also have to recognize that one of the most difficult principles of life in Christ, and that is that joy does not exclude sorrow. Joy does not exclude sorrow. That seems kind of oxymoronic, doesn't it? Christian joy, unlike the world's idea of it, is not an escape from sorrow. It is often a settled contentment in the midst of it. Consequently, as we walk this road of faith and begin to understand the character of God's joy, we not only remember the power of joy in our past, and reinforce our practice of it in the present. But finally, we must recognize the principle of joy as a future promise. Verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So here's the principle to consider. Joy comes on the other side of tears. You see, there's no fine print in God's word, is there? He's totally upfront with us. Sometimes, many times, there are tears. But let's be honest, characteristically, we try to eliminate the things that hurt us. We avoid confrontation with people. We take pills to dull the pain. We hold back from taking risks. We refuse to sacrifice ourselves, resist deep relationships, and we run from responsibility, all the while immersing ourselves in entertainment and indulging our passions in an endless pursuit of happiness, and it's fruitless, isn't it, in the world? That avoidance has even entered the church, hasn't it? We don't want to sow in tears, so we don't sow. We don't want to plow hard ground. It's too much work, so we don't plant. Is there any wonder why there is no harvest and there is no joy? Refamiliarize yourself with the life of Jesus and the apostles, the early Christian church, and any missionary biography, and you will find that joy is the result of a long season of sacrificial blood, sweat, and tears. Heartfelt tears. Remember Jesus, who went to the cross? He endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? For the joy set before him. The joy set before him. True joy is not found in escaping the pain associated with sowing seeds of truth, but by plunging wholeheartedly into God's work regardless of the suffering that we may encounter. Through it all, we find that God is a dependable father. His word is trustworthy, and his promises are sure. And we can camp on those promises. Verse 6, he who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Look, if we're faithful to follow Christ, 
even when it hurts, the outcome will be joy, my friends. It will be. Guaranteed. Weeping may last for the night, wrote David in Psalm 30, verse 5, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Amen? You might be ready to give up talking to your family about Christ. Maybe the soil seems too dry and parched and fruitless. You may think it's not worth the nightmare to try and farm that soil. But let me tell you, do not give up. Don't give up. Weep you may, but sow you must, because joy comes in the morning. Gospel tears are not lost, said Charles Spurgeon. And when it comes to the kingdom, there is joyful return for tearful labor. Therefore, my beloved brethren, writes Paul, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Rather than me close with an illustration this morning, I'm going to show you one. I'm going to ask you to watch this video. This is something that Shirley and I put together, actually, for the Refidim Project. And it relates perfectly to this psalm. You watch this. Service in the kingdom is fraught with pain. There are many, many discouraging times. Agony over sin. Tears shed over souls. Weeping over hard-heartedness. Disappointment. Betrayal. Persecution. Poverty, rejection, abandonment. We must recognize a principle. Joy comes on the other side of tears. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. In a sermon entitled, God's Ways Are Unreasonable, Missionary Professor Del Tar uses a powerful illustration from West Africa where he served 14 years with the Assemblies of God. He said, I grew up in a preacher's home in the little towns of Minnesota and South Dakota and I spent most of my free time with Deacon's kids on John Deere tractors, international harvesters, and such. I learned how to drill oats, plant corn, and cultivate. Never once did I see a deacon behave like Psalm 126 says. What was there to weep about at sowing time? I was perplexed by this scripture, he said. Until I went to the Sahel, the vast stretch of savanna, more than 4,000 miles wide, just under the Sahara Desert. With a climate much like the Bible lands, that desert, all the moisture comes in a four-month period, May, June, July, and August. After that, not a drop of rain falls for eight months. The ground cracks from dryness and so do your hands and feet. The winds off the Sahara pick up the dust and throw it thousands of feet into the air and then it comes slowly drifting across West Africa as fine grit and it gets in your mouth and inside your watch and stops it. It gets inside your refrigerator if you have one. He says the year's food, of course, must be all grown in four months. People grow sorghum or milo in fields larger than this sanctuary. Their only tools are the strengths of their back and a short-handled hoe. That's it. The average annual income is between $85 and $100 per person. 
October and November, these are beautiful months. The granaries are full. The harvest has come. People sing and dance. They eat two meals a day, one about 10 in the morning, and after they've been to the field a while, the other just after sundown. December comes, and the granaries start to recede. Many families omit the morning meal. Certainly by January, not one family in 50 is still eating two meals a day. By February, the evening meal diminishes. People feel the clutch of hunger once again, and the meal shrinks even more during March, and children succumb to sickness. You don't stay well on a half a meal a day. April is the month that haunts my memory, he says. The African dusk is quiet. You see no jet engines, no traffic noises to break the stillness. The dust filters down through the air and sounds carry on for long distances. April is the month you hear the babies crying in the twilight. From the village over here and from the village over there, their mother's milk is now stopped. Parents go at this time of year to the bush country where they scrape bark from certain trees. They dig up roots as well, collect leaves, and grind it all together to make a thin gruel. They may pawn a chair, a cooking pot, or a bicycle tire in order to buy a little more grain from those wealthy enough to have some remaining. But most often the days are passed with only an evening cup of gruel. Then inevitably it happens, he writes. A six or seven year old boy comes running to his father one day with sudden excitement. Daddy, daddy, we've got grain, he shouts. Son, you know we don't have grain. We haven't had grain for weeks. Yes, we have, the boy insists. Out in the hut where we keep the goats, there's a leather sack hanging up on the wall. I reached up and put my hand down in there. Daddy, there's grain in there. Give it to mommy so she can make flour and tonight our tummies can sleep. And the father, he writes, stands motionless. Son, we can't do that, he explains. That's next year's seed grain. It's the only thing between us and starvation. We're waiting for the rains, and then we must use it. The rains finally arrive in May, and when they do, the young boy watches as his father takes the sack from the wall and does the most unreasonable thing imaginable. Instead of feeding his desperately weakened family, he goes out to the field, and he says, I've seen it with tears streaming down his face. He takes the precious seed and throws it away. He scatters it in the dirt. Why? Because he believes in the harvest. The seed is his. He owns it. He can do anything he wants with it. The act of sowing it hurts so much that he cries while he does it. But as the African pastors say when they preach on Psalm 126, brothers and sisters, this is God's law of the harvest. Don't expect to rejoice later on unless you have been willing to sow in tears. ask you, he concludes, how much would it cost you to sow in tears? Jesus said, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. 
You need your joy restored? Learn the lessons of Psalm 126. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It was in the past. It is now. And it will be tomorrow.